Welcome to the Crossroads Community Church Podcast. We exist to be a life-giving church in our community that helps people know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and go make a difference. Here you will find weekly sermons and teachings from our Sunday services. Let's dive into this week's message. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Revelation. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 1 through chapter 22. And we're going to go through all of this. We show up on the scene and to give you a little bit of understanding of Revelation. Revelation is actually comes from a Greek word, uh, and it's called apocalypsi. All right, it's the Greek word. And yes, you would be correct to know that that's where we get the word apocalypse. Uh, apocalypse is a very simple word to know. It simply means to reveal or to show something. And so if we were to think about the book of Revelation, this apocalypsi, it's literally a book that was presented to John to reveal something or to show him something. John was one of the disciples at this particular time. He's on the island of Patmos. He is actually in what's called a rock quarry. He is there because of his faith, and he is being punished. And in the process of being there and and being punished for his faith, God shows him a vision. But not just God, but Jesus himself shows up. In fact, chapter 1, if you were to read it, and you're not going to see all of these scriptures on uh, screen, but especially in verse 17, it has Jesus coming back, and it talks about his hair being white as wool and his feet like bronze, and he has this sword coming out of his mouth, and his voice sounds like a lot of roaring water. And this is Jesus Christ himself coming to John, the disciple, to give him this, this revelation, to spend time with him. And it actually happens where when, G, when John realizes it's Jesus in chapter, uh, verse 1, chapter 17, John passes out. And Jesus revives him, and they carry on a conversation. You say, what was that conversation? I'd encourage you to go read it. All right? And it takes up the end of chapter 1. And then in chapter 2, it starts what ends up being six major events that Jesus shows John from chapter 2 to verse 22, and that's where we're going to be today. The first part that he does, if you're taking notes, is chapter 2 and 3. Jesus is, is with John, and he's called what's called the early church age or just simply the church age. You can make it very simple. It's easy to know the church age because this is the time that we're living in right now. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this particular section because, honestly, we're going to come back to this. This is where the meat of the message is going to be because this is when Jesus himself speaks to John, and he's basically giving John the playbook of how to be prepared as his church. It talks about seven different churches. These are real churches, real locations that would be in what's today modern-day Turkey, but they were meant for an eternal impact. And so you have eternal concepts to them, and we'll come back to that. But then we come on the scene in chapter 4, verse 1, with the rapture. Now, I need to go back and and hit a couple of things I talked about last week, just so we're all on the same page, because the word rapture is nowhere in God's word. Like, some people do not believe in the rapture because they say, well, I don't see the word, the rapture, in the word. But I want to let you know where it comes from. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. And it says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then he who are alive... Who are left will be caught up. If you have a paper Bible or even electronic, highlight those two words caught up. Because what we know about, and I talked about this last week briefly, those two words come from the Greek word hypothos, which in Latin is the word rapture. It's where we get the concept of rapture. 
So even though people may not believe in the rapture because it's not verbatim the word in there, the reality is, is the concept is very much there. The word called up in the Greek is literally the aspect to, to snatch, uh, snatch quickly. And that's where we're sitting. So biblical truth can be biblical truth as long as it aligns with God's word and the concepts. The rapture is very much in there. With that being said, let me tell you how it shows up in Revelation chapter 4 verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing, standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. This is the rapture of the church. It's chapter 4, verse 1, and it's the second event, second major event in Revelation. In fact, very intriguing, the church is in Revelation 18 times prior to this verse. After chapter 4, verse 1, the church is never mentioned again. Now, I know that some people believe that the church will go through tribulation. I would encourage you to seek God's face and study his word and come to your own conclusion. Yes, you're probably catching where I stand. I believe that in this verse, the church is taken up. And I believe the reason why the church is never mentioned again is because the church is not there. I do not believe that God wants his children to suffer wrath. In fact, I'll read you another scripture that is very simple. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I talked about this a little bit last week. It says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourself are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. I, I just... I need to make sure that you know this. The, what it's really talking about is you just need to know if you feel like I'm going to have a lot of time to get ready, that's not what this is. Like when this takes place, it's going to be quick. It's going to happen very suddenly. If you think about a thief in the night, like I don't even care what you've prepared. You can still find yourself in a bad situation because you weren't ready for the unexpected. That's what this is talking about. So for those that believe that I'm just, you know, I'm just waiting to see some signs. And when I see certain signs, then, then I'm going to get ready. You are fooling yourself. Matthew says it this way. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 40, he says, Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Just boom. Like, like we've all seen different movies, right? What was that series, Left Behind series or whatever, and dudes like flying the airplane, all of a sudden everybody's on the airplane and ain't nobody flying it. Like, like it's going to happen quickly. But listen to this verse. It, it's, it's actually chapter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. Here's where I get the concept that he does not want us to suffer wrath. It says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the second event that's in Revelation is the aspect of the rapture. And I believe that's where he's calling his church up. And I believe that will happen as the second event as depicted in Revelation. Now, the third event is where most people want to spend most of the time because it's the biggest chunk of Revelation, but it's also the most confusing. The third event starts in chapter 4, verse 2, and doesn't end until chapter 19. And it's this seven years of tribulation. This is the part where everybody wants to know, well, what does this mean, and what does this mean, and what about this, and what about this, and how does this work? And, I, and just know, it is, and, and I've studied it in seminary, and listen, the, the old joke, 
this was a revelation to John, but it really wasn't anybody else because it's just confusing. But just so you know, what, what was revealed to John, this apocalyptic teaching, this prophecy of end times, was something that was very real. And it launches onto the scene with this tribulation with this person called the Antichrist. Now, here's all you need to know about the Antichrist. It's very simple. He shows up in the scene, and nobody calls him the Antichrist. Like, it ain't like he shows up in the scene, and everybody goes, hey, man, what's up, Mr. Antichrist? Hey, I'm doing good. How are you doing? Like, nobody knows who he is. Now, we have figured it out that because of reading God's word that he's going to either be a politician or some sort of a famous, famous person. But here's what we need to know about the Antichrist. The Antichrist is going to be the one that usher in the tribulation. Now, I'll, I'll share with you in a minute one of the, the other reasons why I believe the church is already raptured and no longer here because it actually there's somebody that's holding that back. Like the Holy Spirit is the one that holds back the Antichrist from ever being revealed and starting these seven years of tribulation. And Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit lives and dwells in us. So therefore, if the Holy Spirit's the person that's holding back the Antichrist and we the church are the, the, met, or the, the temples of the Holy Spirit, then how can he be released while we're still on earth? I'll, I'll show you in Scripture in just a minute. But here's what I want you to get as far as the Antichrist. Here's how you're going to know who the Antichrist is. The first thing he's going to do is he's going to show up on the scene and he's going to do something that nobody has ever done. He is going to create peace in the Middle East. He will broker a deal between Israel and the Palestinians for them to be able to rebuild their temple on the original Temple Mount, which, yes, is where the Dome of the Rock is currently. And they will rebuild that temple only for three and a half years later for him to yank it back away from them. That's roughly around Revelations chapter 11, and you can read and study that. But you just need to know, here, here's the simple concept. He shows up on the scene acting like the Savior of the world, like a Christ. The only problem is, is his ultimate end game is to be anti, to be against everything that is godly. And he wrecks the world. Literally, at this point, all hell breaks loose in this world. Like, Literally. And you say, well, Mickey, if you had to describe tribulation, how would you describe it? God is a just God. And he, there is consequences for your sin. And tribulation is God being consistent where his wrath has to be poured out on this world. And so he is going to take all the church and rapture and bring them to himself. And the remnant that's left behind for seven years, the wrath of God is going to be poured out on this earth. And it's not going to be done through God getting them. It's going to be done by his absence and allowing the Antichrist to rule in this world. Scripture tells us that there will be a few people that will make it through tribulation, that will come into the concept of a relationship with Jesus Christ, but that is very, very, very slim and very uncommon. Most people that enter tribulation are not going to make it through it. In fact, you say, well, Mickey, I... I want to study a little bit. Like, this revelation has got me intrigued. Here's what I would tell you from the times that I've studied it. I'd encourage you to study the, the first three chapters, that first chapter and then chapters two and three, which is the, the early church or the church age. And we're going to go back to that in a minute. And, and then hit the rapture in 4-1, and then I'd skip. I'd skip the whole tribulation. I'd go to chapter 19. Because very simply this, the aspect of tribulation is so hard to understand because of the concept in which it was written. Can you imagine John 
who's on Patmos in this rock quarry, and he's being shown the end of time. All the technology, all the concepts, everything that's going on, but he's writing it with a 2,000-year-ago with a language. For example, they haven't even invented the automobile. How's he going to describe a helicopter? Like, like, there's no such thing as a gun, like, pew, but yet he's going to explain nuclear weapons. And so even though there's this amazing metaphor and, and the language is very clear, and don't mishear me, I believe the book of Revelation was inspired by God and written down by John. But he is using a language. You've got John, who was a disciple, who is meeting with Jesus, he is revealing to him the end times, and he is trying to explain technology and events with things that haven't even been created or he knows nothing about. That's one of the reasons why we know this is inspired by God, because without God's help, guess what? Ain't none of this even going to be close. Now, I'm not going to tell you that this is exactly what this stuff is, but, but when we look at tribulation and it Talks about, you know, eyes like a fly, sounds like a locust, tail like a scorpion. Well, that sounds like a helicopter, doesn't it? But he didn't know what a helicopter was. Yeah, when he talks about some of the effects that it happens and the way a body, it sounds a little bit like it could be a nuclear bomb. Now, listen to me. I'm not telling you that the end of the world's going to be Apache helicopters and nuclear bombs. That's not what I'm telling you today. What I'm telling you is, is that as you study Revelation, you have to understand the concept that's there. That's the reason why I tell you, start with chapter 1, get to chapter 3, go for 4, verse 1, and just skip to chapter 19. Because the tribulation, the more you try to study it, you're not going to figure it out. And the other reason why I tell you that is because if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, it don't matter to you anyway, you ain't going to be here. In fact, let me show you where that's at. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6. I'm going to start in verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for the, that day, talking about the end days, will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed and the son of, man, uh, son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. This is talking about the Antichrist, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And then listen to chapter, verse 6. And you know what is restraining him now so that, that he may be revealed in this time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until it is out of the way. And then the lawless, will, uh, lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the uh, appearance of his coming. And what he's talking about is literally the person of the Holy Spirit who has to literally hold back the Antichrist. Well, all of this shows up, and then we get into chapter 19, and we're now in the fourth major event. The fourth major event that is in the book of Revelation is the second coming of Christ. It happens in chapter 19, and, and I, I almost, I mean, like if, if it wasn't for my love for our elders and the job they do, I almost had some like, I was going to have some like what I thought would be Jesus' walkout music. And I couldn't figure out if it's going to be Thunderstruck or Crazy Train or Rocky. But I was like, I mean, I just got in my picture, like it's going to be a trumpet that starts at like, dun-dun, dun-dun, dun-dun. And he's like, aye, aye, aye. and here he comes, baby. <laughs> Listen, 
And it's like, it's on. Like this, like he's, he's like, I've seen enough. Zach, I'm available for worship dream team if you need anything. I just want to go ahead and point that out, you know. I mean, that, that was just all natural right there. That was me. I know you thought that was somebody on the guitar, but that was actually my voice. We got to laugh because this is a heavy topic. But listen, I think he shows up, and he shows up in chapter 19, and he comes flying down. And this is the end of tribulation. It's chapter 19, verse 11. And here's what I want you to catch. What I love about Revelation is not all the mystery that we don't understand. It's all the things that we do understand. Because the bottom line is, here's what you need to know. When Jesus got involved, it all came to an end real quick. In fact, I will read it to you. If you will, join me in chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, if you have a paper Bible, underline that. That's, that's referring to Jesus himself. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flame of fire. These are the same descriptions that you find in chapter 1. And on his head are many diadems or crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows, that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. That's referring back to the cross. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven array in fine linens, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a, a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thighs, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And whew, I'm getting emotional thinking about it because I, I mean, you just need to know that when Jesus gets involved, he hits a point where he says, okay, that's enough. Like, I, I've given you your moment. Like, like, I set everything up in Genesis chapter 1. And you came slithering your little self into my perfect garden and my perfect world, and you deceived one lady that left to deceiving a man and a woman, and the rest of my Bible was all about the chaos you brought, but by golly, now, now I'm done. And that's the next event. And then he immediately sets up his fifth event, which is the marriage supper of the Lamb. So after he has his second coming, now, and to make sure I, I say this, the second coming of Christ is different than the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church happens before tribulation. The second coming of Christ happens at the end of tribulation where he shows up and he ends it. And then the first thing that he does is he throws a party. He throws a major party, and he eats with all of his people, and he's like, like we're going to throw a party. In fact, it, it talks about like this, this marriage supper of the Lamb. And, and here's what's amazing about this marriage supper of the Lamb. In fact, it's the reason why, if you've been around here, whenever we throw a big party celebrating an anniversary, we do it like a wedding reception because of this whole concept. Like your church is known as the bride. And he throws, and I'm so thankful as a guy that's a foodie, like, like that when we get to the end of this, it's not going to be like, you know, we little fat things on clouds with harps, you know. Like we, he's throwing a party and we're going to eat and like I, I, I hope they have a little side of manna, you know what I'm saying? Like I always wonder what that tastes like. Like it's going to be amazing. But he settles it all. But I want you to listen to what happens with this concept of the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's verse 19, chapter 19, verse 17. He simply says this, come gather for the great supper of God. 
Have you ever went through a moment where Thanksgiving's coming up? Where you had all this preparation and all these things coming on and people are trying to get to where they got to get to and they've rearranged their schedule. And then there's just something about that moment when all of a sudden everybody sits down and it's just like, now let's eat. I believe that's what this is going to be like. Except it's going to be a celebratory like, like we done. We never have to go back. Well, the next event that he has in the book of Revelation is the great white throne of judgment. It's Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 and 12. It says this, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his present earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. Now listen to these words. This is something that absolutely blew me away. And books with an S were opened. Then another book, singular, was opened, which in the book of life. And the dead was judged by what was written in the books with an S according to what they have done. Like, I need you to know that this, this white throne of judgment in which God is going to judge everybody after the marriage supper of the Lamb, like, there are two books in which you can be judged by. There's a books, which is all the things that you've ever done, good, bad, and indifferent. And then there's a book, which is the Lamb books of life. Scripture tells us that if your name is written in the Lamb book of life, then when he gets to the books, they're going to be like, okay, Michael Tracy Clark. That's my name, in case you didn't know that. It's not Mickey. And they turned around and they said, all right, I got, I got some books. And I'll be like, you kept up with all that? Like, I didn't, I didn't know you was watching at that point. And Jesus going, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. No, no, no. Put the books up. He's in the book. Like, like you can, a lot of people think hell is a place that people go because they're being punished by God. That's not true. Hell is a place that people go because they want to pay for their own sins by themselves rather than leaving, letting Jesus pay for their sins. So that, that's the choice you have. You can be judged by the books, everything you've done, or you can be judged by the book to having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, the last event is the concept of the new heaven and the new earth. And you see this in the last two chapters. I'm not going to spend a great amount of time on this because we have a few more things to go and we've got a little bit of time left. But in the new heaven and the new earth, just know that the earth is literally remade into the Genesis 1 state. So you've went through all of these things, and I know I've not gotten into major detail, but literally I'm almost done with the whole book of Revelation. And it ends with the setting up of the new heaven and the new earth. And it will be set back up in its Genesis 1 state. Like in Genesis chapter 1, there was no rain. Why? Because, because there, was, there was water that just bubbled up from the ground. And it, just, it was perfect. It watered itself. There was no thorns. There were no thistles. There was no death. There was no, like you didn't have to worry about animals eating each other. Like that's the reason why it talks about the lion will lay with the lamb. Like animals weren't scared of us. You say, oh, what about those dinosaurs? In Genesis chapter 1, the dinosaurs are like, hey, what's up, dinosaur? Like, I call you a, I call you a T-Rex, you know? But you watch too many movies. T-Rex wasn't going, Hum. no, he was like eating melons and nuts and stuff like that. Like, like the world was perfect. What became chaos because of sin 
will be create, created into right order and harmony again. Everything is in correct harmony. I heard one guy teaching about this, and he was saying, yeah, and it's almost like he was teaching, like, all of us are going to have these new bodies and this new heaven and this new earth, and, and like, like the Chinese are going to look like somebody that works at, you know, Mayfield Dairy on southeast Tennessee. That ain't the truth. Like, this is, you're going to have all nationalities, all, there's no more racism. There's no more struggles. Like, even though we don't all look the same, ain't nobody thinking about that. The only thing we're thinking about is that we get to dwell in this perfect heaven, this, this separation that's been caused because of sin. Now God has made the new heaven and the, and the new earth. These things can now be joined again, just like in Genesis chapter 1 when God would come down to the garden and walk through in the midst of the day. Like, he will be able to do those things again. There's no longer a separation. I heard, I heard one guy one time talking about no more racism and all these people would be gathered there. And, and the old boy was like, well, I'll tell you what, if those people are going to be there, I ain't going to be there. And I thought, yeah, you probably ain't. <laughs> you know? But, you know, but, I mean, it's just, it just like, like it's going to be perfect. And you're going to dwell there. But can I go back to the, to the church age? Can I go back to the spot that, that I really want us to dwell for just a second? Because I just covered the entire book, but I, but I want to go back to chapters 2 and 3. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, it says this, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. If I had to give you a, a summary of what chapter 2 and 3 is... It, it's the wedding coordinator's plan book of how to make sure the church is ready, being his bride. Like, like I've been doing a, a lot of different weddings lately and got some more coming up. But it's one of those things that, there, I mean, it, there's a lot of things that are happening in a wedding. There's a lot of money that's happening in the wedding. Like, used to be the biggest deal was, did the church have a center aisle? Now there's so much more. You say, what's your thoughts on that? I don't have a thought about it because, because People want to make sure that the bride is ready. Like, when y'all starting to get your hair done? Well, we're going to start about, I don't know, 6 o'clock the night before. Okay, whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like, we got people coming in and hairdressers coming in and makeup artists coming in and everything else and doing different stuff and spending this money and doing it. And it's like, why? Because, because there's something about a bride that's ready, and they want to make sure the bride is ready. And I believe that's where we're sitting. And I want to make sure that we, his church or his bride, that we are ready like, I don't want the doors to open up, and woohoo, here comes the bride. And it's like, oh, <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> like, what? Like, what happened? Is this, is this the same person I dated? Like, what, what did, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, that's funny right now, but could you, like, praise the Lord, I've never been to a wedding like that, you know? Could you imagine if all of a sudden the doors open up and the guy goes, oh, <laughs> oh. You know, like I don't want that. And Jesus speaks to John through seven churches and says, here's what you need to do to be ready. I'm going to go through these quickly, but give me 10 minutes. Are you ready? First of all, in Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, the first church he uses is Ephesus. Their issue was that you used to love me a lot and you need to return to your first love. Can I read it? But I have this against you that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. 
the lampstand has always been a symbol of God's spirit. You say, well, what does it mean as far as going to remove his lampstand? I'll be honest with you, I don't know, but that doesn't sound good. Like, like, like with Crossroads Community Church, like, like I, if we don't have his spirit, like, we done. So I don't, I don't know. The, the first thing I want to encourage you, like, we're all a part of this bride. Like, can I ask you a, a very serious question? You remember when you first accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Well, I do. I, 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 I wanted to be at church all the time. It was the craziest thing. I went over there on a Thursday night for, like, a choir that was coming through that was singing at the church, and I would found out about it. I'm like, oh, I'm going to go over there. And my mom's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm going to church. They have a youth choir coming through, and they're doing some little, and she's like, what, Lord, what has happened to my son, you know? And I, I mean, like, I just, I couldn't get enough of it. And life hits, doesn't it? And that makes you human. But today, I'm going to pull on you. We got to get back to what our first love is. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through him. And we need to make that a bigger deal. The second one that he talks about is uh, Smyrna. Smyrna's issue is very simple. Uh, it's going to get harder, but they need to remain faithful. It's talking about these aspects of, of some suffering and some struggles. It says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Now, some people will read that and say, see, there you go. The church hasn't been brought up yet. We're going to go through tribulation. That's not what it's talking about. What it's talking about is you're going you're gonna to have some persecution. Like, like can I take just a moment? Like, like, we have first world problems right now here at Crossroads. Do you know that there's a persecuted church that right now there are people that will be found in a secret worship service that will literally lose their life because of their announcement of Jesus Christ as Lord of their life, the persecuted church. And, and I, 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 man, I, I, I say amen. Like, let's pray for them. Let, let's pray that they will keep being bold in their faith. But let's, with we have all the freedom in the world, let's step out and live ours a little bit louder. And when things get a little bit tough, let's not let our tough times cause us to walk away. Can I put it simpler? Circumstances shouldn't define your life, but your God should define your circumstances. Nobody said that having a relationship with Jesus is going to be all better roses. Some of you may deal with sickness. Some of you may deal with disease. Some of you may deal with the loss of somebody really close to you. May deal with a job change. May deal with some poverty issues because you just don't feel like you got enough. Like, I don't know what your struggles or tribulations are, but I promise you, God already saw it. He said, you know what? Remain faithful. Remain faithful, and I will give you the crown of life. That's the second way that the church can be prepared. Return to its first love and remain faithful no matter what's going on. The third one is right in Scripture. The very next verses is Pergamum. And they had doctrinal extremes. This is chapter 2, verses 14 and 16. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrifices to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who are holding the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them in the sword of my mouth. Now, I know that maybe like, well, I don't know what that means. Well, I'm here to help you. I've studied this. I know what it means. Balaam is a doctrine. These are doctrinal streams. Balaam was a doctrine that's kind of like, you know, we good. You know, you good, I'm good, we good. Like, it's all, we all good. Like, we just, we're good. It don't matter what you do. You do whatever you want to because we're good. 
We would call it hyper grace. You know, just grace, 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 grace. Oh, it's okay what you're doing. It's okay. Grace, it's fine. Grace. God's given us grace. Listen to me. Balak explains exactly what it was. They were, out, they were taking sacrifices meant for the idols, and they were eating and partaking of them and doing sexual immorality things. But listen to me. We have to understand that grace without truth is meaningless. In fact, we, we have a major shift going on right now. Most people are living their life, and they make their theology change to meet their behavior rather than letting their behavior move towards their theology. Like, that's good right there. Like, you need to make sure you get that. You can't let your behavior dictate your theology. You got to make sure that your behavior moves towards your theology. Some people say, well, Mickey, I, I was born this way. Well, guess what? I was born angry and impatient. That's why I became born again. I don't let my theology and start changing my theology and what God's word says based on where my behavior is. I submit to Jesus Christ and say because of who Jesus is and because of what his word says, I got to move my, I can't be impatient. I can't be angry. I can't keep doing these things. Why? Because theology is the study of God and this is who God is. And God doesn't fit my behavior. I got to make my behavior become what fits my God. And we call it obedience. The Nicolaitans, they, they're the exact opposite. They would be the extreme, the opposite way. They were just true, 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 true. They'd be always like, you blinked wrong. Like we were taking up an offering and you were, you were kneeling. You're supposed to be standing. Like you got to know the culture, the Jewish culture, and you, you when to sit and when to stand and when to kneel and when to come forward and when to repeat and peace with you and also with you. All right, we're good. Yeah, like you got to know. They were just extremeness. Listen to me. Grace without truth is meaningless. Well, truth without grace, that's just mean. Like we all know these people, right? Anybody been to a professional ball game lately? You got the bullhorn guy, right, with the whole thing, like, sanctified French fry, you going to hell, you just need to turn and burn. I can't believe you're going to this ball game on a Sunday when it's Sabbath, and everybody knows Sabbath is for the Lord, and I don't know why you're watching the NFL. I'm going, dude, like, is this helping? Amy Lou and I were walking across the pedestrian bridge going over to the amazing Nissan Stadium that now has been changed to something else, going to watch the Titans play, and there was a dude just, I mean, he was just, wah, 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 wah. and I was like, Lord, can I throw him off this bridge? Because I believe a revival would break out, in which I didn't. But it's one of those things I'm going, like, what are you doing? He said, well, Mickey, which one is it? It's neither. You heard me say this a few weeks back at our celebration. Grace without truth is, is meaningless. Truth without grace is mean. But you put them together, grace and truth together, guess what? That, that's good medicine right there. In fact, Jesus refers to himself as grace and truth. In fact, he always puts grace first. You know why? Because grace invites you to freedom. Truth sets you free. Grace invites you into freedom. But truth is what sets you free. You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And you will be free indeed. Well, the next 
The next one we're going to look at is in Revelations chapter 2, verse 20. It's Thyatira. And these are the people that were removing some impurities. It says, but I have this against you. You tolerate the, the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. The concept here, these are the people that just, they just, they bought into the compromise. I mean, there's no way to put it. They just, you know, it's 2022. I'm bold enough to say it. Just don't overthink this. You can never, you can never accept sin under the umbrella of love. That's called compromise. God's word's very clear. And so we have to understand that we got to have grace, we got to have truth, we got to have them together the way we love each other, the way we treat each other. But we can never let culture dictate our theology. We can't let culture dictate our truth. We have to make sure that compromise is left out. And we say, this, this is what this church was dealing with. Their bride was not going to be ready because they had compromised. I, I'm thankful that this doesn't happen much anymore, but... But back in the 80s and 90s, it used to be the night before you got married was kind of like the last hurrah, whatever that meant. And I used to always tell people, like, you know, like, why would you want to start your marriage out like that? Why would you want to compromise everything that a marriage is built on by having one last night with the boys? Or, and girls, y'all ain't fooling nobody. One last night with the girls, you know. And I'm not stupid. Now they make them bachelorette and bachelor trips, you know, where they just go somewhere else where don't nobody know them. Yeah, that seems a lot safer. But anyway, uh, but it, it's one of those things. It's like, why, why do you want to have compromise? Like, like, once you've compromised, it's very hard to ever get back. That's what this church was. The next one that, that Jesus talks about is actually one of the concepts of Sardis. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. And, and Dwayne, you can go ahead and make your way back up as I finish this up. But... Sardis was, was very simple, and, and we're going to talk about this next week because very simply what they were doing is, is it said you were doing good, but you kind of lost your purpose. In fact, let me just read it, Revelations 3, 2. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because we're running out of time, and I'm actually going to come back to this next week. But just know that you have a purpose. And a part of getting prepared and the bride being ready is to make sure that you are doing your purpose. And what he says to Sardis, and these aren't just horrible letters. He actually gives them major positive, and he just lets them know of something that, hey, you know, we could work on this. Like if we're getting ready for the wedding, then you may want to, hey, you may want to work on your makeup. Hey, you, you may want to get your dress altered a little bit. I mean, I'm just saying. I'm not saying you have to. I'm just saying, you know, that doesn't fit. You know, like you may want to get these things done. That's what he's saying. It's the playbook. Like, to get ready for this marriage supper of the Lamb, like, here's some things you need to do to make sure the bride's ready. And we'll go back to Sardis. The next one is the only one he doesn't say anything negative about. It's the church of Philadelphia. Revelation chapter 3, verse 8. Listen to this. This is huge. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have built, you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. You may tell you the key, the reason why God doesn't say anything negative about this church is because they loved his word. Like you want me to give you an attribute that's going to help you be ready for the bride? 
like when, when, when the trumpet sounds and he calls us up and he's bringing in his bride and that's you and me as his church, love his word. Respect his word. Learn his word. Be in his word. Like, like it is the greatest attribute that a believer should have, yet it's the most uncommon. Well, Mickey, I just, I, it's hard to understand. Well, you know what? Football was hard to understand until I started doing it a lot. Hockey. I still ain't figured that one out. (laughs) Like, I get excited, and they're like icing, and I'm like, somebody please explain to me icing one more time. Don't even get me started with soccer. Like, I'm a kickball spastic. I'm like, yeah, kick the ball. Just kick the, how hard is it? Just kick the ball, you know? I don't understand those things. Why? Because I don't spend a lot of time with them. But the things that I've spent a lot of time with, it starts to become clear and I start to understand it. You may tell you why a lot of you lack, and I'm including myself, a knowledge of God's word and why it seems to be so hard to understand. It's because you're never in it. Like, I want to pull on you. I don't want to get too hard on you today. But I'm telling you, being in God's word is the equivalent of the white dress to today's bride in a wedding. It makes her stand out. It makes you know who she is. And I don't know if anybody hadn't looked beautiful in a white dress. Make a commitment to get in his word. In fact, I don't know how many we have left, but a lot of you, your biggest struggle is you have what I call a reading Bible. You don't have a study Bible. You've got grandma's King James version she gave you when you was baptized 40 years ago. And you wonder why you don't understand it. I'm Because it's tough. But but out here we have a a ESV study Bible. I believe it's the best Bible for you to get in to learn God's word. They're normally about a hundred bucks. We got them for 40. You say, how many you got? I don't know. Shane Hall and Anitra are probably about to kill me and Angie and them. Because I don't, but we'll get, put your name down. We'll, We'll get you one. Listen, we will invest in you having a copy of God's word that you can get in and you can study. In fact, majority of the people in here probably already have it. Show is that the version? It ain't about the version. It is a great version. But I'm telling you, it's about the Bible and the way it's laid out. I encourage you to get one immediately. And then there's one more. The last one that he uses, this is Jesus speaking, was Laodicea. Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 7. I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either, I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because of your lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit or spew you out of my mouth. For you say, this is what's hilarious. You say, I am rich and I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. See, their issue was not only were they lukewarm, but they were arrogant. They saw themselves as something that they weren't. He said, we would take these seven things and look at the game and listen to me. Some of us, we, we need to fall back in love with our first love. Some of us, we, we need to start understanding what it is he has called us to and understanding hard times are just hard times, but that shouldn't depict our faith. For some of us, we need to get off of these extremes with these different theologies and just be centered on God's word and love God and love people. For others, it's, it's an aspect of getting back into his word and falling in love with his word. Or for some of us, we just gotta quit being lukewarm. 
If you do a study of Laodicea, the reason why it uses this is actually in an area where water ducts is a really big deal. It's a really cool study. And so they would have these water ducts that would let different waters come in and out of the city. And that's where this concept, he spoke to them in a language they would understand. For a lot of you, on Sunday, you won't be hot as a firecracker. But on Friday night, you're like, man, don't, don't talk to me about Jesus because I'm going to do my thing. And as a bride, you're nauseating. Like the door's going to open, it's going to be like, ooh. But I want you to know something. That's not how Jesus sees you. Like, I'm talking to you from a manly standpoint. But I tell you how, how Jesus sees you. It's in chapter 3, verse 20. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens up the door, I will come in to him, and I will eat with him, and he with me. You know, the amazing thing to me about the books and the book is that when we accept Christ our Lord and Savior, he looks at you and he goes, whew, that's, that's my bride. Anybody been married like more than 20 years? Just raise your hand real quick. Keep your hand up if the person you married looks exactly like they did when you first married them. Notice all the guys are dropping their hands and all the ladies are keeping their hands up. Believe it or not, this was about 145 pounds 25 years ago. You say, what happened? I got hungry. <laughs> and my amazing bride knows how to cook. And meals at the house, just the two of us, were amazing. Listen to me. God's not consumed with your looks or what you have done. He's consumed with who he's created you to be. And that he loves you enough, he wants to spend forever with you. And so because of that, he ends. The last words that he says is he says, hey, I'm standing at the door knocking. And if you'll just open up, if you'll just let me in, I'll eat with you forever. I'll throw a big feast and just like a marriage, I'll commit to you for eternity. It no longer will be till death do us part. It'll just be like, like, like we never apart. But it starts with you making yourself ready. Thank you for listening to the Crossroads Community Church Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe so you don't miss out. Also, if you want to help support reaching more people with these life-giving messages, visit crossroadscommunitychurch.com slash give. Once again, thanks for listening.